Let us hear God's word, 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my lord, as the lord lives and as your soul lives, since the lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my lord be as Nabal. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, and remember your maidservant. The grass withers, <clears throat> the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, last time, of course, we uh, started this section, looking at verses 2 to 17, and we are introduced to Nabal whose name means the foolish one. And even though David and his men had helped the shepherds of Nabal, <clears throat> Nabal refused to give David anything as repayment. Simply, he was a Scrooge, but even more so, he opposed David, the anointed one of the Lord. He was on Saul's side, at least to some degree. Now, we all know people like Nabal. They are surly, they are wicked, and they side with the wicked. But we also need to see the foolishness of David here in this section. He responded much like Nabal. He too played the fool. He became very upset and sought to take vengeance on Nabal. Rather than turning the other cheek, rather than leaving vengeance to God, David takes matters into his own hands. He is bitter. He is holding a grudge. He is not 
being godly at all. Now, we may not pick up swords to go kill people, but we do the same kind of thing every day. We nurse grudges, sometimes even for years, because we're not really concerned about being godly. Like David, we are foolish, and we do not do things God's way. Well, thankfully, God sends deterrence to stymie us in our sin and in our foolishness. Ultimately, of course, he has sent Christ to stymie us in our sin. But God providentially does this on a regular basis. Maybe our phone won't connect when we want to chew someone out. Maybe we can't find our keys when we want to drive over and give someone a piece of our mind. Maybe we get there, but the person's not there. Maybe something else interrupts our selfish plans, like even something like the weather. And so God does this actually on a regular basis. We, the question is, are we aware of it? And yet sometimes God sends people to help us, to stop us, to help us to avoid our sin and help us to do what is righteous and godly. Now, for many of us, of course, it's going to be a, a spouse or a parent, maybe a friend, maybe a church leader or a church member, even sometimes people we don't even know. Sometimes we are unaware of this. David probably did not know this servant. At least at first, he didn't know what the servant had done. Maybe he knew the servant, right, as David helped the shepherds and so forth, but he wouldn't have known what had happened in verses 14 and 17 until later. So sometimes people tell someone we know and love about our foolishness, and that person then comes to us to talk some sense into us. Now, in this case, David doesn't know Abigail either, but he will come to know her quite well. (laughs) And so here you see how God is raising up these two people to help David and to stop him in his sin. Now, what is so unusual about this is you hardly ever see a woman in the scripture do this. Almost always, it is one man confronting another man. But here is a woman, and it highlights the sin of Nabal, her husband, and it also highlights the sin of David. They were in a really bad place that God needed to use a woman. And this isn't to diminish the women. This is to, if you will, diminish Nabal and David here. So let's look at this then briefly. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. All right, well, obviously we see Abigail jumps into action immediately. Verses 14 to 17, right, the servant comes and says, hey, you better do something or I'll be dead, and uh, so she jumps into action. Now, I think we have every reason to believe that all of this that she took was already prepared. Remember, they are shearing the sheep, and they're going to have a big feast. Otherwise, you're talking hours and possibly even days to make all of these things. And by that time, David would have wiped everybody out. And so we have every reason to believe that she basically took what was already prepared and loaded them on these donkeys and went to meet David. 
Obviously, the amounts here are quite significant. 200 loaves of bread. You know, we might bring home a half a dozen from the store. Hey, <clears throat> two skins of wine, which depends on how big it is, but probably 20 gallons each. Five sheep already dressed, not a leg of lamb here, but all the sheep, five of them already prepared and ready to go. A says, uh, uh here uh, is a dry measure, but think of it basically a gallon and a half. And so five of them, that's about seven and a half gallons of grain. And uh, you see all these raisins and these figs and so on. And, you know, did she have ten donkeys or something? We don't know how many there were, but it didn't all fit in the back of her car. Um, and so <clears throat> Abigail surely is bringing enough to satisfy David in what he was expecting for repayment for helping Nabal. And surely she must have included extra to help stymie and temper his anger. So in verse 19 then, it says, She said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. All right, so obviously we see Abigail sends the servants on ahead. And surely this is to encounter David as quickly as possible. And to encounter him not with an individual servant or even herself, but with all the loot, so to speak. With all the stuff that he was wanting. So as he comes racing down the mountainside or whatever it was, he would see all of these things and it might help stop him. Okay. Now, I think of our time frame here. Okay. We're probably not talking too much time, maybe a half an hour, maybe an hour or something for all this to take place. And, uh, and so they're moving very quickly. Now, doesn't this remind you of another scenario of lots of goods being shipped on in front of someone to help stymie someone and appease them, stymie them in their anger? And think of when Jacob did this on his way back to the promised land, and he was afraid that Esau would come out and kill him. And so he sent lots of goods ahead of him, along with his family, to try to appease Esau, and, and it worked. And... Is it going to work here then is the question. Now, some people have made the case, and there's probably some truth to this, that Abigail also wanted some time to uh, pretty herself up, so to speak. And they are shearing sheep, and maybe the servants are doing it, but surely she would have been uh, somewhat untidy and maybe wanted to clean up first before she would go encounter this man. Um, you know, if you have a pretty woman coming before you, you're not as likely to strike them down. So uh, this is probably not altogether an unrelated point. <laughs> All right, but notice how the verse ends. She does not tell her husband. So verse 20. <clears throat> so it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under the cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Obviously, we see here that Abigail goes a certain direction. The implication seems to be that she went specifically in this direction, in part, so that her husband would not see her. Okay, so maybe we've done that at times. We go a certain direction so so-and-so will not see us as we're driving wherever we're wanting to go. And uh, this is what she's doing, and understandably so. As we saw last time, Nabal would not listen to reason. He is a, an evil man, 
And so here is Abigail trying to avoid him because surely he would have stopped her. And so she goes a different direction. Now, it may also be that that's just simply the way David was coming. I'm inclined to think both are intended, the way it's worded here. All right, now let me pause here a moment and have us reflect on two thoughts. We come again. We can't get away from it. We come again to a situation where someone does not tell the truth. We've seen this with Samuel when he brought an animal to sacrifice to keep Saul from understanding what's happening. We see this happening, of course, with Michael and what she did. Now there, it clearly says that she lied. And she does not tell the truth to try to preserve David's life. We see, of course, David and Jonathan doing this in regard to Saul. Uh, We see it later when David comes to Ahimelech. We see it when David goes to Achish in Gath. Well, here's it, it, it is again. And we keep coming across these scenarios. What do we do when there is a life and death situation? Are we allowed to lie? Well, as I have said, Each time we've come across this, I don't think the Ninth Commandment ever needs to be set aside. I've said that for years. There's no place for us for lying. But we do see a number of scenarios. Here, God telling Samuel not to tell the whole truth. And now here, in this case, Abigail, she just doesn't say anything. She completely avoids her husband. And so, remember that Nabal really deserved the truth. She was, or he was, her husband. He was the head of the house. And yet, she doesn't tell him. And so, the reason why she doesn't tell him is pretty obvious. He's going to allow evil to take place. There likely would have been death if she went and told him. But she doesn't. Okay? And so by not saying anything, she preserves life. She does not lie. So she seems to be perfectly just in this. So here you have, I think, something similar to what we saw with Samuel coming with a sacrifice and what David did with Ahimelech. In those cases, partial truth was given and not the whole truth. In this case... No truth was given, but there is no lying. And there is nothing in the text whatsoever that would condemn Abigail for doing that, just like we saw in the other passages. And so I think this is how we should understand it. So we come across it again, and we will see more of this kind of scenario as we finish out 1 Samuel. And as I've said, as we've come to it each time, Whenever we are facing a life or death situation, this is an important um, approach that we should understand. We're not talking about whether or not, um, you know, some everyday situation in our house is taking place. We're talking about someone wanting to harm another. And the way our culture is going, we're going to face this. 
And so be prepared. Now, the second idea here, then, is this. David, of course, is acting like Saul, as we talked about last time, and here now like Nabal. David wants to take life unjustly. Now, this is a point that is actually here in the verse, but it's obscured at least the way the New King James has translated it. Here is Abigail coming to meet David. She must have been a bit afraid. Here is David coming with 400 men. Now, possibly they were on horses or donkeys. Maybe they were just on foot. It doesn't tell us specifically. But they are certainly coming with evil intent. And here she comes to meet him, to confront him. Now, the Hebrew actually has two words for meet at the end of the verse. The New King James says here at the end of verse 20 that David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. That prepositional phrase toward her is actually an infinitive. It it literally says that David and his men were coming down to meet her, but she met him or them. Now, these are actually two different words in the Hebrew. The first one is the far more common word used eight, nine hundred times, and it can mean a regular meeting, no big deal, but it can also mean to confront, to encounter, even to meet in battle. David certainly is doing so. The next two verses are going to make that clear. He is coming with evil intent, aggressive, hostile. Now, the second word for meet is only used 14 times in the Old Testament. And it can mean the same things. It can mean it's an everyday meeting. It can mean to meet in confrontation. But the fact that whoever this was, Gad or whoever wrote this part of 1 Samuel, the fact that he uses two different words, I think, is very intentional. Okay, this morning in Psalm 107, the different words, okay, not that much different. We get the same idea. But here, these two different words seem to be highlighting the fact that David is coming to harm, and here comes Abigail to stop David and his men, to confront David in his sin, to stymie him. And I'm sure she must have been a bit afraid when she saw them coming. Well, the text now, in, in, in many ways, takes a tangent to highlight what David is doing. So verse 21, how David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all this fellow has done in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. Obviously, David, he's just mad. He's upset. He feels disrespected. He helps someone out. That person said, forget it. I'm not going to say thank you or anything else. And so uh, he, he wants to harm the person. He wants to go beat him up, as it were. Now, again, we may not be so angered that we want to go kill, but we all have been angered enough to go and want to harm someone, maybe with the sword of our tongue, but we want to harm people because of how they have treated us. Your elders have had to deal with situations like this. One scenario in particular, the people have felt totally disrespected by various people in the situation. 
They have um, been upset because their perspective was not heeded, and yet they have gotten mad and haven't handled the situation very well. They've desired to harm, not with guns or swords, but with slander. Okay, some people, they'll try to cancel or give the cold shoulder or whatever it is. But you see how David is acting here, and let's not do what we typically do and say, oh, how stupid of David, and not see how we do the same things, because we all have. Okay. Now notice how David then justifies his sin. Verse 22, may God do so. And more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him, my morning light. David now calls on God to be on his side as he goes and sinfully wants to kill people. David obviously is taking matters into his own hands. He does not leave vengeance to God. Now, I think strictly speaking, this is not a vow that David makes, but it's approaching that the way he words things. But again, don't we often do the same thing? Somebody offends us in one way or another, and we take matters into our own hands. We use God's name, we pray, we even use scripture or his promises to excuse our sin. We're offended. And, and yet we hold on to the fact that God promised to defend us against our enemies. We feel disrespected, and we say, well, you know, God says that we must respect those in authority over us or something to that effect, and, and they haven't respected me, so, you know, it's their problem. Um, we help someone, and they do not show appreciation, and so though we say, well, I'm not going to help them anymore. I'm not going to throw my pearls to that swine. But through the whole process, it's our pride our selfishness, our unwillingness to turn the other cheek, our unwillingness to go the extra mile and forgive and remove the plank in our own eye that's really the biggest problem. It's not that they don't have problems, but we have as many problems. But we stand justified in our mind, calling on God to help us, as David does, but we are just as much in the wrong. Maybe in different ways, but we are still in the wrong. And so notice how David is, you might say, completely oblivious to himself. And so instead of saying, okay, God, please take care of this situation, and he sits back and he waits, okay, sitting out with you know, his 600 men or maybe going somewhere else and letting God deal with the ball on his own. No, he takes matters into his own hands. And so, once again, think of how you have done this, because you have. But thankfully, even when we do not cry out for help, as we talked about in Psalm 107 here this morning, sometimes God helps us anyway. And he is the one who initiates God says, send something or someone to stymie us in our sin. Sometimes it's an illness or an accident or some other hard providence. 
And sometimes it's someone that he sends to confront us. Now, I have more to say on how to respond in the last section here of the chapter. But don't we usually resist the people or the things that God sends our way to say, give it a rest. What's your problem? Okay. You know, something interferes with our endeavor to get back, and, and we just, you know, we don't, we don't get the message, and we just kind of go around it, and we try anyway. Or God sends someone to say, hey, what are you doing? And we just, we shout at them, too. What's the matter? How come you're not on my side? Well, <clears throat> there's more to say about that, certainly, and we'll look at it next time. But what the text is doing here, I think, is reminding us of the severity of this situation. You know, we hear what David is a man after God's own heart. He'd never do this, right? You know, he's not that bad of a guy. (laughs) Uh, Well, we think that about ourselves too, don't we? But every one of us can do some very evil things. And so these two verses are highlighting the severity of the situation and the significance of what Abigail does. And so we return then to God using this woman. And in verse 23, it says, Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. Now again, this is highly unusual. We do not see women doing this in the scriptures hardly at all. But here she is. The men just can't get it together, and so God uses a woman. And in the next two verses, we could translate the conjunctions as then or so. Hey, next, this kind of thing. The action is picking up. Uh, You could read it like this. Then Abigail saw David. Then, literally, it's then she hastened. Then she dismounted from the donkey. Then she fell on her face before David. Then she bowed down to the ground. Then she fell at his feet. Then she said, I mean, it's just action-packed. But again, this is literally a life-or-death situation here. So you can understand why. Abigail moves quickly. She hastens here, but notice her humility. Now, as we go through these verses, it's obvious that she knows who David is. And so she is coming to someone based on what she has heard. Likely had never met him before. But in this case, she's unsure of what he's going to do. And so she's putting herself At David's mercy, she comes, and she comes right down, basically, to David's feet. As I said earlier, most people are not going to strike down an unarmed woman. And here, as we've been told, she was a beautiful woman at that. All right, verse 24 then, um, it says, So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. We see here that Abigail first puts the blame on herself. Now, you might wonder what she means by this, but she's going to say a little bit more later on. But basically, she thinks that she should have stopped her husband's folly. It is very likely that she has done that on many occasions. We're just not told about it. 
She knows the character of her husband and likely had put herself in these kind of scenarios before to try to stymie him in his sin. But she wasn't there. She, she was unable to prevent this scenario from developing. And so she basically says, David, forgive me. I, I, I didn't stop my husband. Then, notice how she next asks permission to speak. Note the please there. It's actually a command. It's a petition, right? Note the humility here. Listen to me. And notice how she calls herself maidservant twice. In fact, she does six times in these verses. All of this is very humble, her words and her actions, right? She's on her face. She's down at David's feet. As the proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath. This is what she's trying to do. So let me pause here a moment then. Let us learn from Abigail. Okay? God sometimes uses us to stymie somebody else in their sin. Our tendency is to be brash and judgmental. Let's learn from Abigail. When we are used by God to confront someone in their sin, let's be humble about it. Let's take whatever blame that maybe we can take to try to defuse the situation and to help. So verse 25, note again her humility. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. All right, here we have another command, imperative, petition. Again, note her humility here, the please that goes along with it. And that's actually in the Hebrew, um, that, that word there. <clears throat> and notice how she calls David her Lord, her master. In fact, 14 times in these verses she calls him such. Great humility on her part. And simply she says, David, don't listen to my husband. He is just a foolish idiot. He's senseless. Don't listen to him. And notice that she calls him a scoundrel, the New King James says. And the Hebrew is a man of Belial. Remember, Eli's sons were called such. Those who didn't accept Saul were called such. And earlier in the chapter, last week we saw, uh, Nabal called it. And now she is saying it herself. Now, there's some emphasis here, too, the way things are worded. Maybe the most obvious one is when you see there toward the end of the verse, it says, but I, your maidservant, did not see. Well, the pronoun I is repeated there. So, obviously, a, a sticky situation, a lot of emphasis, a lot of humility. And simply, she says, I would have done differently if your men came to me. She is not criticizing the ten men. They did what any... Ten men would do in this kind of situation, but if they would have come to her, there would have been a very different result. And so she is distancing herself from her husband, and she is taking the responsibility. Why she is to blame is simply explained for us here in her mind. All right, let me pause here and say this. Uh, some people may criticize Abigail for being so mean and disrespectful to her husband, well, um, certainly that can happen. But as we read through these words, I don't think that applies here. 
I think she is speaking matter-of-factly and says, uh, <clears throat> David, not everybody agrees with Nabal. He said, get lost. Well, not everybody thinks that's the right thing to do. So, you know, uh, calm down here, please. <laughs> okay. But note also this point. Yes, Nabal is her head, her husband, her authority, her master, using biblical language. But there does come a point in time where we obey God and not man. And that's what she's doing. She is obeying God here, who said, preserve life, the sixth commandment. And so she's not breaking the fifth commandment, necessarily, but she is showing honor to her greater authority. You may even be able to argue that since David is the anointed king, that she's submitting to her king over her husband. But I don't think we can criticize Abigail here, but I mean, let's be honest. In any kind of situation like this, we're not going to do it perfectly. But God still uses us to stymie people in their sin. And so... Even if someone is going to legitimately argue that Abigail should have done differently in one way or another and not criticized her husband, um, still God uses her quite forcefully and dramatically here. But I don't agree with that assessment. All right, so I think she does righteously. So verse 26 then, it says, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. All right, now the way she opens this, as my Lord lives and so forth, as God lives, that is actually similar language to what we saw in chapter 14. Saul used that language, remember his foolish vow, And he used the language when he said, even if it's Jonathan who ate something, he's going to be put to death. And so there, that language highlights the sin of Saul. Here, the language highlights the righteousness of Abigail. Note again her humility. She is made servant, my Lord, and so forth. And she addresses then enemies. And I think this is because of what we saw in verse 22. And maybe that's why Gad or whoever it was inserted verse 22 here, right? (laughs) David had said, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David. And now she speaks about the enemies of David being judged. But we have to remember that David is his own enemy here. David is being prevented from being his own worst enemy. God graciously is working in this way by sending the servant and Abigail. But, of course, the the main emphasis here is on Saul, on Nabal, and the men of Ziph, and any of the others that were against David. Note also her assumption. You might say that she is assuming the best, assuming the best outcome. As you read this, it's like, well, you're not going to go through with what you're planning to do, David. Now, maybe it's because she saw... David relent. As she came before him and bowed down and started speaking to him, maybe she saw that fire in his eyes go away. Maybe the the tenseness in his face relaxed. But at the very least, she expected him to relent because she knew what kind of man David was. 
And so then, notice she ends here by basically saying, may the wicked be cursed. All those who are opposed to God's anointed, including her husband. So verse 27, and now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. All right, well, before we can say anything about the gift, all these other things needed to take place. But now she calls attention to uh, what she brought, this gift, this present she prepared for David and his men. And remember, this is what David had requested, and when he didn't receive it, this is why he got so mad. And so now here, David should no longer be upset. Maybe he's not very happy with Nabal, but there's no reason to go kill anybody now. He got what he had hoped for. So verse 28, Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Well, first of all, note again her humility. Note another please. Note another imperative. It's a petition here. And again, for the second time, she says, please forgive me for not stopping this and stopping my husband. And then she turns into one of the most profound speakers in regard to David that we see throughout all the scriptures. Abigail proclaims that Yahweh will establish David as king. And in fact, her words are very much like what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you recall, that is the place where the Davidic covenant is established. And so here is Abigail, what, 20 years ahead of time before that? We don't know. But at some point, before 2 Samuel 7, she is saying virtually the same things. Yahweh will establish you as king and your house. And so David, she says, you are not like Saul. You are the true king. You are not an evil man. Don't act like my husband. In fact, Abigail, in essence, is is, uh, indicating that she is like David and that she is on David's side. We continue then in verse 29, where she continues and says, Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out, as from the pocket of a sling. So she's continuing these almost prophetic words here, and clearly she's referring to Saul, ultimately, as Saul is coming after him, and, and yes, he's against you now, David, including those who have sided with Saul. But my Lord, you're going to be bound in this bundle. Now, the poetic um, description that she uses here, and obviously she's talking about how Yahweh will protect him. Now, let me pause here just a moment and say this. You remember that Saul never says, Yahweh, my God. I believe I mentioned it at least once before, but um, Yahweh, my God, is not on the lips of Saul. It's always Yahweh, your God. But here, of course, Abigail is speaking to David and says that language. 
David, of course, says Yahweh my God many times. Saul uses God's name, but there's never that personal relationship going on. Now, more to the point here, the first time the name Yahweh is used in this chapter is in verse 26, and it's on the lips of Abigail. David didn't use it, right? Go back to verse 22, may God do so. It doesn't use the covenant name there. It's Abigail, and she says Yahweh's name seven times here in this section. And so notice the faith of Abigail, focusing on the covenant Lord. And think of some of what we talked about this morning. All right, now, notice also that Abigail alludes to Goliath here, about the sling. In fact, the only time this word sling or sling out is used in the scripture, in, uh, sorry, in 1 Samuel is in chapter 17 and here. And so clearly, she is referring to the situation of David killing Goliath. So she alludes to Saul chasing him. She alludes now to Goliath. And though it's wrong for Saul to chase, God will protect you, David. And God will destroy your enemies like you had destroyed Goliath before. And so note her encouragement. Too bad David doesn't remember that as we go forward. And then in verse 30... And this is only part of the sentence, but it says, And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel. And pause here. Okay, the rest in verse 31. And let me make this comment here. Abigail is clearly saying that David would be king. If you missed it in the previous verses, it's very clear here. That word for ruler or commander is only used of Saul and David in 1 Samuel. So she is very deliberate on what she is saying. And so when you become king, verse 31, that this will be no grief to you or offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, I think part of what she is saying is this. David, when you become king, this offense by Nabal will be as nothing. It will be totally insignificant compared to everything else. I think that's part of her her meaning here. But more to the point, notice she is indicating, I'm stopping you from sinning, David. So this will not be held against you going forward. If you would have murdered over a little bit of food... Okay, that would have been political suicide. And, and who knows what have, would have happened if he went through with this. God may have rejected David like he rejected Saul. We don't know. It didn't happen that way. But God in his grace instead sends this woman to prevent those things from happening. And so she ends by saying, look, when you're established as king, when Yahweh does this, remember how I helped you. And David does, doesn't he? see that here at the end of the chapter all right now some people have tried to make the case that abigail here is prophesying things that she has no idea what she's saying um okay maybe i think it is far more likely that she had heard that david was anointed 
As I said a few chapters ago, I'm not sure other than just a handful of people that anyone knew that David was anointed king. But at this point, I think we have to assume by her words that word was spreading. Nabal refused that word, but Abigail is welcoming it. And so God sends this woman to humbly rebuke David for acting like Nabal. God uses this godly woman to stymie one of his own in their sin. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't happen later with Bathsheba and Uriah or later with the census. But at least this is not held against David because God, in his grace, sent someone to stop him in his sin. We have here again an apology for David, as we've seen repeatedly, especially since chapter 16. Here it is again. David isn't as bad as some people say, but he almost was, but for God's grace. And God hasn't just done those things years ago. He does the same kinds of things for his people today. God, sometimes in his grace, sends wise people to keep us from doing something foolish or even worse, even criminal or immoral. So, ideally, Abigail's head should have done differently. The anointed head of Israel should have done differently. Ideally, we would do better. But, of course, it didn't happen here, and many times we don't. And so in this case, a woman needs to take charge to lead these men in righteousness. Again, this is not to diminish women in any way, but to highlight the sin of the men. And so she prevents David from becoming like her husband and even like Saul. And she also prevents Carmel from becoming like Nob. And you remember there, all the priests and their families were slaughtered. Dr. Davis calls her a savior in a skirt. Once again, this is highly unusual. But we see Tamar, to some degree, Deborah especially doing this, Ruth doing something similar, Esther doing something like this. So again, very few times in the scriptures we see a woman initiating here in this way. Another thing to mention here briefly, this is the longest speech by a woman in the scriptures. Now, yes, we have Hannah's song, Deborah's song, Mary's song. But in terms of an actual speech, this is the longest one. Let me read here a moment from Dr. Davis, who speaks to this. And he says, the text teaches us how Yahweh rescues his servants from their own stupidity, how he restrains them from executing their sinful purposes, how sometimes he graciously and firmly intercepts us on the road to folly. In the text, of course, Yahweh does this for his anointed king. But Yahweh is not bound up in the biblical text. His mercy is not confined to his special servants. His vigilance over his erring people is not restricted to roughly 3,000 years ago. 
What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness? What mercy sends frustration to our purposes? What kindness builds hindrances in our path? So when those hindrances come, don't start cursing and complaining. Say, thank you, Lord. When God sends a person to do this, don't let them get your fiery darts out of your mouth or a swinging fist or anything else. Be thankful that God sent someone to prevent you from doing something sinful. Now, let me end with this thought then. When God calls us to be an Abigail, let's learn from this woman. When God calls us to be that person to stop our loved one in their sin, let's be humble as she was. Let's be wise as she was. Let us speak the truth as she did. Let's focus on God in the right ways, his promises on the right ways, not to justify our sinful behavior, but to call that other person to do what is right. And so clearly we have Abigail as a model for us to follow here in this passage. And God sometimes calls us to do this very thing. Maybe not in such a dramatic way, but certainly in everyday ways with our families, with our friends, and so forth. And so may God help us. Now, Lord willing, next time we'll look at how David responds. Did he listen? Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we are, again, so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for these stories in the Old Testament to put, as it were, flesh on the bones, uh, a, a, a picture, a, a story here to help us to understand principles that we see spoken more abstractly in your word. And um, you might say that we see an example of a soft answer turning away wrath here in this passage. We thank you for it, and we ask then, Lord, that you'd help us to learn from it, that, that we would learn uh, not to be like David, but rather to learn to be like Abigail, that we would not resist your efforts to prevent us from doing foolish and sinful things, but to submit to your providence, to submit to uh, those who come at your bidding to help us to live righteously. We thank you most of all, Lord, for Christ, that you send him to stymie us in our sin, to take the judgment that we deserve, to put us on the path, to righteousness and holiness. But we ask, Lord, for your grace and your mercies here then to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, that we would live in a way that honors you as Abigail does here. And so we pray, Lord, for your enabling in this and that your name would be honored in it all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.